This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, we are here on a Faith and Reason Retreat. It's a great honor to be here with uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Deganzik, and uh, he will provide the intellectual powerhouseness. And as a priest, obviously my primary concern is your spiritual well-being. Because ideas, even good ideas, about reality, about angels, about God, about Jesus, ideas cannot save us. Were that the case, the eternal Son of God would not have become incarnate. He simply would have sent us a note that we could read and understand. The Word is a living Word, eternal Word, the eternal Word of God for us and for our salvation. And so what I will do, we each uh, have two talks engaging the themes of reason and faith. Mine, my first talk this evening, we're going to look at, set up, that the two kind of go together, but we're going to set up the spirituality of reason tonight and then look at, although there'll be some overlap, the spirituality of faith. So tonight, the spirituality of reason. Now, that may strike some of you as an odd title, because for two reasons. One, spirituality is something today in the secular world, in the modern world, in the religious world, no one is against spirituality. You're never going to encounter somebody who says, I think you're too spiritual. Most people affirm, endorse, and approve of spirituality. What we do not like, however, is religion, particularly outward shows of religion, Sunday obligations, going to church, wearing clothing, uh, images, crucifixes that depict the corpus of our Lord, habits like I'm wearing, etc. So one of the most common things that is said today is everyone will endorse being spiritual and they'll often say, I'm spiritual but not religious. So if we keep that in the background of our mind, that's kind of the meta theme that we're going to engage as we proceed in my presentations. Secondly, that topic, the spirituality of reason, may also amuse you because spirituality is usually conjoined to, associated with, annexed to, uh, matters that are more divine, sublime, and celestial you wouldn't usually associate reason or logic or thinking or discursion with spirituality. You might assume that we would talk more about uh, the spirituality of faith, but to inquire into the spirituality of reason might strike us as paradoxical, if not downright uh, contradictory. But what I propose to you this evening is that reason, human knowledge, is intrinsically spiritual, and how we understand human knowledge, and the act of human knowledge, human reason, both deepens us in, confirms us in, and reveals our spirituality. So, lay all my cards on the table. All the new atheists, all the materialists, Bertrand Russell, A.J. Eyre, Baruch Spinoza, Jean-Jacques Rousseau were profoundly spiritual men, even if they rejected 
the Articles of the Faith, and divine revealed truth and religion. So, how do we do that? So, just as a couple preliminary points, we're talking about human knowledge this weekend. And within human knowledge, there are two types or ways of human knowledge. There's reason, what we're focusing on tonight, or natural human knowledge. And then there's faith, or supernatural human knowledge. So again, I know some of this, you might want, I wouldn't define it quite the way, we'll just, just go with it, and we can adjust or deal with things in the Q&A and as perhaps as we go along. So we're focusing on human knowledge, how we know things, and again, we're positing that there's two ways that humans can know things. There's through reason, through natural means. We don't need God's help to know that two plus two equals four. We don't need God's help to know uh, uh, that, um, you know, the laws of gravity. We don't need God's revelation to inform us about basic scientific, the law of inertia. There are some things, however, we do need God to tell us about that reason could never discover. For example, that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No syllogism could ever conclude to be one God, three divine persons. No syllogism, no discursive movement could ever resolve to the fact that the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word, would become man and die for you and for me. Those things Jesus, God, had to tell us. So to get all my cards on the table, the spirituality of reason I will propose to you this evening, and tomorrow the spirituality of faith, they both relate to God, but in different ways. The spirituality of reason terminates, ends in God, That's the direction, that's the form, that's the shape of the spirituality of human reason, and of all human reason. I'm not just saying for the Christian, for the students of Regent University, for the skeptics, for St. Thomas Aquinas, for R.C. Sproul. We mean for everybody. Controversial claim, perhaps, but that's what I'm proposing to you. And then, the spirituality of faith begins with God. Because again, we can't arrive at supernatural truths like the Trinity, like the Incarnation, like the mysteries of faith, apart from God revealing them to our knowledge, and then we would begin from them and move. So the spirituality of reason is fundamentally, irrevocably, undeniably, although you can frustrate it and be unhappy, a movement to God. How do we justify this? Well, let's look at the natures, the nature of human cognition. And by cognition, sometimes I don't mean this isn't, we're Dominicans, we have, we use technical words. You'd be, you'd be both either edified or uh, amused or bemused at how Dominicans throw around technical words around lunch table. So just so you know, I'm going to talk about human knowledge and sometimes I might say cognition. I don't mean to use uh, $50 words just for fun, but unfortunately, that's the kind of vocabulary we grew up with around here. Okay, how does human knowledge or human cognition work? So we'll use Father Jonah Teller. Father Teller, here he is. We'll give him a cross, he's a priest. Good. All right, there he is. 
he is uh, a rational animal, which uh, my colleague here will address you on more fully about what that means in his two lectures. Man is a knowing animal and the man is a believing animal. Beautiful. Can't wait to hear those. I will be there for those. Um, but, so, Father Teller has a rational soul, which means he has an intellect, which means that when he knows things, like a rock, just for an example, his whole humanity is drawn into his encounter with this object, this thing that he regards. And when we say that he knows something, you've had this experience. You walk outside, you see a rock. You understand what that is. I have nieces and nephews, and they walk around my sister and brother-in-law. What's that? Well, that's a rock. That's a bird. That's a tree. What's happening? Just not that Father Teller needs my parents to inform him about these things. However, when they might all people, including Father Teller in our example, encounter objects of knowledge, what happens is through the senses, you encounter something outside of yourself. No one is born Cartesian, like Descartes, who is famous, as you know, for asking, how do I know that I know? No child sits in their room, in their crib, closes their eyes, and enters into the deepest recesses of their being. No, all children, as humans, start outside of themselves. They want to touch. They want to feel, they want to smell, they want to taste sometimes, everything. And it's through the senses that they encounter, we encounter, Father Teller encounters reality. And in this case, we're typifying reality in the rock. And what happens then is through his senses, he encounters the rock and he overcomes a problem. A problem. I like to call this, much to the chagrin of my students, including one of them right here who's heard this joke a thousand times, the Goliath problem. Because initially we have a situation. Father Teller is both uh, animal, he's got a body, he's got biological, organic material, and he's also spiritual. And this rock also has physical, biological elements. And if knowledge, which it is, is the union in some way of outside reality with us, there needs to be a dematerialization, an unmattering of this, or you have the Goliath problem. When Father Teller would know about a rock, the rock would go in his head and he'd be dead. So this is why the unique power of the human soul, we have the power through the agent intellect to, through the senses, we get an image of this. We're encountering, okay, there's a hard gray, substance, granular and heavy out there. And from that, he gets, Father Teller, or the human person gets, we'll call it the R, the essence, the form of the rock is dematerialized such that he can have the shape of the rock shape his intellect. This happens immediately. Every child, every adult, every person, every priest who can see and experience life encounters, it could be a tree, it could be a cat, it could be a bird. We abstract, dematerialize the form of a rock from its material components 
and we hold in our mind, when I know what a rock is, I have received into my intellect, in a spiritual way, the essence or the form of what I know. And I do that in a way that's wholly immaterial, such that I can describe and recognize another rock. Rock number two. My mind can see that. Oh, look, there's another thing that corresponds to what I saw here. Even though this rock does not have these particular geological properties, characteristics, sentiments, etc., I understand, because I understand the nature of a rock, what it is, I can recognize in my intellect what rockness is. Not just what this rock is, but what rocks are in general. And then I can give you a definition of a rock. What's a rock? Well, a rock is something that's hard. I'm describing the form that I understand. It's something that's gritty, something that's heavy, moves to the center of the earth, and is found on the ground, usually. When I'm able to give a definition of something that I know, what I'm doing is describing the form of the things that are outside my mind, but as my mind comprehends them, understands them, holds them. So, just to summarize, all knowledge begins outside of the human person. And what is outside the human person gets into the human person, the human intellect, through a dematerializing process known as abstraction, by which I arrive at what's known in technical philosophy as the universal, the form. So several things. I've said it already, but we're just to reiterate. Notice the knowledge began outside of itself. I don't know purely. I know something specifically. If I come up to you and say, do you know? No. See, she's like, your next question is what? No. Do I know what? I know what? That's right. <laughs> human cognition is shaped by, human knowledge is shaped by external reality. And once I have lived life, so I've encountered rocks, now I've encountered trees, now I've encountered other people, now I've encountered cars even. This is not going to be a very good car, etc., etc. <laughs> I have a number of concepts intelligible species, ideas about reality. And written into those intelligible species, those concepts about reality, is a profound truth. That's so profound and so evident that we miss it because it's so intimate to us. And it is the real distinction between being and non-being. When I know what a rock is, when I know what a tree is, when I know what a human person is, when I know what anything is, I know that there's a difference between being a rock and not being a rock, between being a tree and not being a tree, between existing and not existing. How do we know we know this? I'm just checking the time here, so we leave some. How do we know this? Using my uh, nephew, uh, Abraham, as an example. Abraham is very much aware of the real distinction between ice cream coneness and non-ice cream coneness. He knows there's a real distinction between being and non-being. And with that real distinction, then, we understand something from this dynamic of knowledge 
that we can typify as order. There is order. Where there's distinction and difference, there is priority, firstness, and secondness. And it's this movement of order from one thing to another, from a distinction on the one hand to the other side of distinction, this act is what reason does, recognizes, and does. Reason is the power of my intellect that moves what we call discursively according to order. So, moving beyond these basic epistemological concerns, when I reason, which is what we're talking about, I am moving from what I know, basic concepts, to what I don't know, or don't know fully. It's the most famous syllogism in the world. The most famous logical example in the world, reason or logic, here we use some of the logic, we can refer to them synonymously, is this, okay, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. What's happening in that syllogism, which is just writing out how the human mind works, you move from knowledge of the nature of humanity as mortal to knowledge of this particular man, Socrates, to a conclusion about Socrates that applies to Socrates, predicates of Socrates, his mortality. This is what we do, and this is why you go to classes, because you, don't, you come in with some knowledge, and your professors, the books you read, take you from what you know to what you don't know. That's the work of reason. It's the act of the intellect of human knowledge that is proportioned to human limits. Human reason operates natively according to and on the plane of what we experience. All human knowledge begins in sense experience, sense perception, but it doesn't stay in sense perception. It moves up to the spiritual realm of the soul, which is not material, because if it were material again, We'd have the Goliath problem. And from that, that, that spiritual plane, when I have the truth, what is the truth? It's the correspondence of the mind with reality. When I have accurately what is the case outside of me, spiritually in my mind, I have the truth. And once I have the truth, I can begin to reason from one truth to another truth. And the example of that we just gave is... Um, Socrates and his mortality. Now, how does this relate to spirituality? When you and I begin to encounter things like rock one, like rock two, like the tree, like other human persons, the mind naturally seeks to understand the order between things and the order of things. So, for example, a kid will know when a tree is not doing so well. A tree that's been mangled, missing branches, this bark's been shred off. It's just kind of, the kid realizes, even a young child, okay, that tree is in bad shape and it's lacking what it should have. Health, stand, robustness, bark, leaves, etc. 
kid would also find it very peculiar. This is impossible, but to find a rock that is not hard, a rock that would be soft. You want to touch a soft rock? Ew, what? See, that, even that, the idea of the soft rock strikes us as strange because when we understand realities and natures of things, we understand that there's a certain order internal to what it means to be a rock, to what it means to be a tree, and indeed what it means to be a human person. Unfortunately, I was, as a kid, I was terrible for my parents. And I, you know, but like you, you meet people who have suffered ailments, you know, like get hurt and have to have operations and lose limbs. And as a child, I was terrible because I'd point, Dad, what happened to that guy? I would just yell it out, which is a horrible thing to do. But that reflects the idea that, Dad, I realize that this man is lacking in order. Once you have all of these components, knowledge of things outside of yourself, spiritually proportioned to your intellect, dematerialized, you recognize the order between them, and then the order, the order in them and the order between them. Namely, I understand the order of a rock, that means hardness, heaviness, granularity, and now I understand the order between them. Oh, and I threw the rock against the tree and lost some of its bark. All of this is within the domain of reason, and it ultimately terminates and bespeaks God. Because there is no such thing as order without an orderer. All order bespeaks an orderer. And in fact, if you want to get into chaos theory, I'm happy to do that with you. But order, absolutely speaking, precedes chaos. You only understand chaos as the absence of order. Chaos, of its very nature, is unintelligible. Because the moment it would be intelligible, if you were to tell me, oh, no, no, Father Cuddy, I understand chaos. What, this chaos? Yeah. It's no longer chaotic, because you've recognized, if you understand it, your intellect has already begun to connect dots and see patterns. It's no longer chaos. Chaos, by even it, is parasitic. It depends upon order. And when you understand order, both intrinsic to realities, like rocks and trees, and extrinsically integrated, like the whole cosmos, you eventually come to realize that your intellect, Father Teller's intellect, is not the only intellect that exists. Because Father Teller, as gifted as he is, and he is gifted, if you don't know if you've heard the Hillbilly Thomas album, he's on there, very talented, but he didn't make rockness. He didn't make treeness. He didn't design the human person. He didn't implant the form within these things himself. His first engagement with knowing things was passive. There was already an idea, a form, a concept that shaped him and his intellect. And so... The philosopher then is obliged to inquire, as Aristotle did, as Plato did, as Leibniz did, as many others did, where this intellect that did establish order and the form and the essence of things in things, where is that? And that is God. Now, this isn't apologetics. We're not doing a full course in philosophy here. But for the sake of the retreat, this is how it works. God, in his essence, is his eternal knowledge. A technical place 
is this is the eternal law, how God knows the world to be. And when God knows what a rock is, he has from all eternity, indeed he is, knowledge of all things, including a rock, and his knowledge, unlike Father Teller's, which is passive, Father Teller receives the form of a rock from outside of it, God imparts through the act of creation, through the establishment of the order of nature and of all of reality, the cognitive shape of all things. This is where in the Bible, before you were, maybe Father Leg mentioned, you know, even before you, know, you were formed in the womb, I knew you. This, therefore, is the foundation for the, the spirituality of reason. Every time you and I know something that's true, we enter into an ordered universe that God made, in which we, through knowing anything, whether it be a rock, a tree, E equals MC squared, 2 plus 2 equals 4, all of those things which we know in concrete, specific, contingent beings, they shape our understanding. And the intellect is a very special power that can jump out of itself and look and see what's happening. It can see, wow, I didn't make the idea of a rock. The rock made the idea of a rock in my mind. And while that rock isn't self-existent, it's not infinite, it's not pure act, it's not self-sustaining, it came to be, it will have an end. Therefore, it is not its own explanation. Therefore, there must be a higher explanation. And eventually, you, your reason, can arrive at, at the end, a knowledge of God. Because what happens here? The spirituality of reason is this. Through knowing reality, like a rock, like a tree, like a plant, like human, like the nature of marriage, human sexuality, truth, anything, you are indirectly knowing what God knows through the thing. If God's knowledge, which it is, is what shapes everything that is, and you can know things which are, that means through your knowledge of what is, you are indirectly, in a refractive way, knowing the mind of God. You can literally, you literally think God's thoughts after him. And through thinking God's thoughts after him, when you jump out of this dynamic of knowing, because you can forget it, you can just spend all your time in here, but the power of people can stop. What are we doing? We're understanding reality. What does this mean? Reason can look upon its own act of knowledge and see the grand cosmic and indeed theological context. Two implications. This is where we're going to end with. Now, I wanted to go to 8.55, so in five minutes we'll wrap this up. There are two types of knowledge. Human knowledge, we're talking reason here. Knowing the rock, through the rock, because God's knowledge impresses upon the form of the rock, the rockness, to give it what it is, we know the rock, etc., etc. There are two ways, two types of knowledge to, to predicate it off of two ends. You can know something speculatively, And you can know something practical. Spe
speculatively, first of all. That's the first and most important type of knowledge, the sine qua non of all knowledge. When we think of speculative, you can also say theoretical. We think it means, today in our connotations, the use of speculative, it means something imaginary, middle-earthy, you know, Hogwarts castle-y. Let me speculate for a moment. We think that we're getting away from reality, but the classical meaning of speculate comes from the word speculum, mere, to see, simply is knowledge to know what is the case. So when I'm after speculative knowledge, my end is simply to know what is true. What is the case? So if I want to know what a rock is, not to make a rock, not to do anything with a rock, what is that? I'm after speculative knowledge. Then you can have, by extension, what we call practical knowledge, which is speculative knowledge, knowledge of what is, but now applied to a work. So to give you an example, let's imagine that I'm not a priest, I'm not a, you know, I'm not anything, I just happen to get into Johns Hopkins Medical School. I am, therefore, reading, studying medicine, not speculatively only, I mean, I want to know how the human body works, but for the practical purpose of being able to heal, to do something with that knowledge. Now let's imagine you, you might be a philosophy major, a history major, a theologian, probably Teller's a priest. He might say, you know, I'm kind of interested in biology. He's looking at my textbooks. He's looking at the same thing, but only just to know how the human body works. That's speculative knowledge. And the most important point I wish you to get across, understand this evening, is that the practical always depends upon the speculative. Because you can't do anything in reality unless you know what reality is. Speculative knowledge can extend the practical knowledge, but you can't start the practical knowledge. Now, how does this fit into spirituality? And this is what we're going to end. Today, we have downplayed, negated speculative. We want results. I want something don't tell me what is, tell me what I can do. I want to be an activist. This bespeaks an attitude toward reality and towards our life, towards our spirituality, which is backwards, which frustrates and instills disorder. Because the only intellect that really starts for our side of things with practical in terms of essences is God. God is the one whose practical knowledge makes things the way they are. There was no rockness before God made it. There was no treeness before God made it. God's practical knowledge is when he created, when he became incarnate, when he did things. Our speculative knowledge, therefore, is shaped by God's practical knowledge, by what he does. And if we invert that and say, no, 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 forget speculative. Allow me to adjust, to manipulate, to control, to fabricate reality. We have basically put ourselves in the place of God. And you see that. Human nature is redefined. 
marriage is redefined, gender is redefined, family is redefined. This, what we're encountering today, and we can talk about it, I mean, there's not, you know, we can reason about some of you might, I don't know if it's so bad. My proposal to you, however, this evening is that what we have with the spirituality of reason, when it's working well, is when we preserve the order of speculative over practical, which bespeaks God's practical knowledge shaping our speculative knowledge. And the inversion of that is nothing less than, quite frankly, demonic. Because it's attempting to put and attribute to our intellect, our knowledge, our spirits, what God alone can do. We don't change natures. We work with them. I can't change rocks. I can do a lot of stuff with rocks once I know what rocks are. I can put them a bunch together, practical, and make a chimney, a house, etc. But I can't change the nature of a rock. Similarly, humanity, nature, marriage, family, the church, the sacraments, Christ. So in conclusion, a profound appreciation for human reason on a natural level bespeaks that we are open to what is real outside of ourselves. We can be shaped by an encounter with real things, with real order, which are made by God, which transform us, and which we can enter into. Knowledge is not a cheap thing. Reason is a term profound power given to us by God. And reason, when it's working best and most fully, always respects the speculative as first. And thanks, and, and we have a true practical knowledge, but we know that God is the ultimate arbiter, he's the ultimate authority by which our knowledge works. Speculative comes first for us. We don't make 